0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Hello. It is Friday, uh, October the 14th, 2022. I've been doing a lot of memoirs recently, and of course, the question becomes, why do we write memoirs? What do we want to remember? What's the purpose? What's the point? Many different reasons, of course, for the graphic artist Kate Kate Beaton, who wrote a a fascinating book about a graphic art book about her memories of working as a young woman uh, in the Alberta oil fields. It's, uh, It's about making sense of one's life. Uh, the narrative of one's life often the narrative of that life is bound up in pain for Nora McInerney who I interviewed uh, earlier uh, this week um writing about oneself is an attempt to make sense of of pain of bad vibes overly uh she has a new book out uh McInerney has had a I wouldn't say it's a tragic life but part of her life has been tragic she lost uh, Her father, her husband, and she had a miscarriage all in the space of a few weeks, and she's built a writing career in some ways as a response to that. For Lynn Melnick, um, who has dealt in her life with the trauma of drug addiction and sexual violence, um, the purpose, I think, of writing a memoir is to, again, make sense of her life, of her suffering, and indeed her lifelong love affair with the, uh, the country artist Dolly Parton, Uh, Writing memoirs are complicated. They tend to be memories of oneself. But the subject today of our conversation is doubly or perhaps triply complicated. Uh, Alice Wexler is my guest. She has a new book out, a memoir of her father, uh, Milton Wexler, which doubles the complexity of any memoir. And to triple it or to make it even more complicated, Milton Wexler was a very distinguished, prominent American psychoanalyst, heavily influenced by Freud and one of the men most responsible for importing Freudian ideas into American psychoanalytical uh, thinking. So this book is complicated and I'm thrilled that Alice is joining us. Uh, Alice from Los Angeles, where you live. Alice. Um, is that fair is this memoir particularly complicated not just because it's about your father it's a way of remembering him and yourself but also because of his business because of his professional preoccupation
1: yes I think it it is complicated although as you say all memoirs are complicated I actually thought of this as a biographical memoir so a kind of a a mix of memoir and biography, because I really wanted to focus on his life, to make sense of his life from my perspective. And when I first thought about writing about him, that was quite a long time ago when I was in my 20s. And I thought it might be a way to um, have a better relationship with him.
0: What was your relationship like? I love the cover of the book. You look so happy. I'm not sure about him.
1: Yeah, well, our relationship was somewhat tumultuous uh, in my 20s, especially. And um, But I also liked the genre of biography. I was in the middle of writing my PhD dissertation uh, in history, and biography was not considered appropriate at that time for dissertation. So I thought I could maybe write this biography on the side, which was uh, quite unrealistic. But he liked the idea, too, and uh, was prepared to work with me on it
0: you're a biographer of um emma goldman a a, a two-part biography quite acclaimed one of them is called emma goldman in america i am guessing alice that writing about emma goldman and writing about your father uh milton wexler was an entirely different uh activity i mean how how do the two biographies compare
1: Well, one thing they had in common is that they were both great letter writers. Emma Goldman wrote thousands of letters. My father also did. So in that sense, there was some commonality in it. Um, But as you say, this was much closer to home to write about my dad.
0: Yeah, I mean, how hard is it to, I, I mean, we all spend our time thinking about our parents, making sense of them, of their relationship, of it, making sense of ourself in the context of parents. How hard was it for you to write this memoir about your father who shaped you, and as I said, was also a psychoanalyst, plus you had this tumultuous relationship with him?
1: You know, I have kept a diary all my life. Uh, in some ways, it was easier for me to write In the first person personally than it was to write at a more more of a distance so i would not say it was it was difficult but in a different way you know um emotionally it was sometimes more difficult and sometimes it was very freeing you know i could i can't say i enjoyed it exactly but i had a very strong motivation to to do it
0: it's a cathartic experience to It must have been to have, I wouldn't say to get him out of your system, but to make sense of him in the context of his life and your life. And of course, his life was so interesting. As I said earlier, um, he was a distinguished American Freudian uh, psychoanalyst. But in his his obituary in the New York Times uh, in 2007, when he died at the very healthy age of 98, um, he's remembered not so much as a psychoanalyst, but more for his work on hereditary disease and his relationship with Huntingdon's disease.
1: Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I think uh, he had quite a reputation as an analyst early, early in his career, particularly because he was dealing with patients with schizophrenia, uh, which was somewhat unusual for psychoanalysts. But really, his impact... I think was much more in as an advocate for research on genetic uh, and neurological disease and specifically huntingtons and he brought in a way i think he brought his skills as a psychoanalyst into his work with scientists very much
0: here's uh for people watching a wonderful photo of, of, of the two girls you and your sister uh leonora and your mother looking he looks rather like a movie star, James Dean or something. Uh, there must have been moments growing up where you were happy, were there? Did you? It, it, I'm guessing it was anything but a normal American family.
1: You know, it, it probably seemed fairly normal. Yeah, we were. We had a lot of time, happy times too. Definitely. Um, it was just, uh, and we didn't know about Huntington's. My sister and I didn't know until. Um, Our mother was diagnosed with Huntington's. I was already 26, my sister was 23. So we didn't grow up under the shadow of Huntington's even though all of her brothers had been diagnosed with it when we were quite little. But it was a secret from us.
0: Was that correct, do you think? Should they have told you?
1: You know, I don't know. It's really hard to say. We didn't didn't have that weight on us. But I think that you know kids kind of can sense secrets, so we probably picked up on things. Well,
0: their parents, I mean, kids pick up on secrets, but they imagine many, and it's hard to, to guess that kind of thing. Perhaps for our audience, oh, Alice, who are not familiar with hunting you might explain what it is, and it's it's a death sentence if you get it, isn't it?
1: You know, I don't I don't use that term because. Well, you know, I apologize
0: if that's rather brutal, but it, it's not a good. It's not a good disease to have
1: no it's not a good disease to have uh woody guthrie had it sometimes people know about it through woody guthrie a famous uh singer songwriter an iconic figure in american culture uh it's a hereditary neurological and psych- psychiatric disease that used to be called huntington's chorea because people move around a lot uh, with involuntary movements but it's also um, affects the mind and the emotions. However, uh, it's very variable. Um, People can live quite a long time as the symptoms develop very slowly. And, um, you know, just because you have the expanded gene, there's one gene, one version of a gene we all have, if it's too big, that's what causes the disease. Um, But Just how it manifests is pretty variable. You can't predict when it's going to come, how fast it's going to go. And there are treatments for the symptoms now, even though not, you know, you can't stop the disease from progressing, but you can treat many of the symptoms.
0: So it was on your mother's side or your father's side or both?
1: On my mother's side.
0: So your father was a a bystander. He couldn't have had it himself.
1: No. He was completely free of, the, of any risk whatsoever. And did
0: he know of the Huntington disease gene in your mother's family before they were married?
1: Aha, well, that's a big question. Uh, he says he didn't know. She didn't tell him. She says she did. Uh, <laughs> we never really know. I, I have a feeling she did not tell him because at that time, uh, you know, if they had asked any doctor anything about it, Huntington's um a doctor or uh even a minister or a rabbi they probably would have said don't don't marry this woman but this you know the whole eugenic idea people who had Huntington's in their family should not have children um and they probably shouldn't get married or they should get sterilized so she probably did not tell him Did him
0: did he resent that was he angry
1: I think he did I think he had some resentment about it yes yeah but he found out when all of her brothers were diagnosed at the same time and that's when he found out they were older than she was so they were ahead of her
0: so on top of all this of course once he knew how old old were you when your mother died
1: I was 36
0: and was this when you became aware of the chance that you yourself and your sister could have inherited Huntingdon's
1: we became aware when she got the diagnosis 10 years before that so we were in our 20s our early mid-20s when we found out
0: and this adds again a a fifth complexity to the memoir because of course uh as a daughter although you're writing about your father rather than your mother one inherits genes doesn't one Alice
1: one does, for better and for worse. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so far, you and your sister have touched. We've been free of Huntington's. Is that right?
1: No, my sister has been diagnosed with Huntington's.
0: Oh, uh, I didn't.
1: Yeah, she has Huntington's now. She's living with Huntington's. Uh, she was diagnosed about three years ago, although she had the symptoms before that. But she's a good example of someone who actually had the beginnings of the symptoms very slowly and was able to live well and do productive work until very recently. And even now she's writing a memoir too. Mm. She's had a really stellar career as a scientist studying Huntington's.
0: There was a big piece about you in the New York Times about being haunted by a gene. Uh, and it talks about your work in the remote villages of, of Venezuela.
1: Um, that's, how my is the, that's
0: Nancy. Oh, I apologize, your sister. How has this affected her and her conception of uh science and and and, and genealogy? Well,
1: I think that she, um you know, she, she loved going to Venezuela, actually. She, she was fascinated by the people there. She cared deeply about them. She felt connected to them. She would tell them. She too was from a Huntington's family. So she went down there with a team of, of uh, researchers, but she didn't go as totally separate from them because she could say to them, look, I also have this disease in my family. So the research was going to benefit her as well as them, you know I think it created a, quite a connection between her and the families in, in Venezuela.
0: For your father being bound up in 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 the the science of Huntingdon's, it must have been rather odd for him because it was purely coincidental. Um, how did he feel about his name being? increasingly associated with Huntington's disease, even though he, he didn't carry the gene.
1: You know, I think he was proud of, of what he did, what he was doing, because he was fascinated by uh, scientists and, and science. I think he was becoming a little disillusioned with psychoanalysis, actually. And um,
0: He wasn't the first or the last to be disillusioned.
1: <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, so he, um, you know, he had, he he reached out to scientists, and he was excited about meeting all of these scientists, who also seemed to be interested in meeting this well-known psychoanalyst. Uh, so it was kind of a two-way love affair. But I think that he, his heart was really in this. Um, he loved working with the scientists. He developed a kind of uh, workshops with scientists to generate new research ideas. And he brought his ideas about free association into these workshops. They were much more freewheeling uh, and interdisciplinary than scientific meetings were usually at that point. So they, these workshops were very exciting to him as well as the scientists.
0: So in a peculiar way, an odd way, he, he married scientific research into Huntington's with psychoanalysis. Uh,
1: That's right. And there was another element here. And that is the fact that he worked with a lot of artists. When he came out to L.A., <clears throat> he came out in 1951 from Topeka, Kansas. And in the late 50s, L.A. was becoming a, um, a destination for artists. They were particularly because there were some very excellent art schools in L.A. at the time. Well, still are. And um, he, because of one particular artist uh, who, who had episodes of schizophrenia, dad became connected and began, got to know a number of artists, visual artists, painters, ceramicists, sculptors. Uh, he even had uh, therapy groups with artists. All of this before Huntington's came along. And um, he loved working with the artists whom he said he learned a lot about He learned a lot from these artists. So I think he brought that into his work with scientists as well.
0: We've done a couple of shows on schizophrenia on the rise and fall of it as a discipline. What was your father's take on its credibility?
1: Uh, You know, I don't know that he questioned the diagnosis. He questioned the treatment um, and he was willing to experiment. Um, he did not use classical psychoanalysis in his treatment with, with patients um, with, schizof- with who had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. I don't know that he uh, questioned the diagnosis as much as uh, others have. And I, you know, Orna Ophir, whose book I haven't read, but I yeah,
0: she was her. she was on the show Ophir.
1: Yes, that was very fascinating. And I think he would have been very sympathetic to, to what, what she was saying. Um, he, but in terms of questioning the diagnosis, I don't know. He tried to theorize what, what was psychoanalysis? I mean, what was sch- schizophrenia in classically Freudian terms?
0: Yeah, what not- drew him, apologize for the interruption, especially since we're talking about Freud, uh, what, what drew him to psychoanalysis in the first place?
1: You know, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that, but that is a question that I never asked him. To my deep regret, it was so much a given in our family yeah. that I never questioned it. I think that he was, but I think that he was attracted to psychoanalysis the way he was attracted to literature, and the characters in literature. Um, Dostoevsky. He read all the Russian writers when he was very young. He he fell in love with them, and also he had some summer jobs working in a sanitarium with uh, patients with schizophrenia. Uh, so, and he had a grandmother, he, he told us, whose Bible uh, was underlined in all the places of psychological insight that he would have uh, underlined. And, and she was a kind of counselor in the community. So um, all of those things, I think, entered into his interest in psychology and then you know Freud in the 20s um, was getting translated into English and there was more interest in psychoanalysis. It was very you know avant-garde at the time. I think all of those things drew him to psychoanalysis
0: We have the image of Freud with his symbolic cigar the the, the sexual element in Freudianism was that something that particularly interested him or was he uh, someone who focused more on uh, main. I mean, if there's such a thing as mainstream psychoanalysis.
1: I don't think it was so much the sexual sexual dimensions as the unconscious part and the idea of the unconscious and its influence uh, on us. I think he was also, when he started to work with people with schizophrenia, this idea of inner emptiness fascinated him. And... Um, he was always trying to theorize that because that was the subjective feeling that patients described to him. So but I, don't, I think he, he was not a rigid Freudian in that way, no.
0: So the dream world particularly um, intrigued him. The cliche, of course, Alice of children of psychoanalysis is that they're terrible parents I grew up with. <laughs> Uh, one family like that, and the father was dreadful. Um, Was he a good parent?
1: You know, I actually think he was a good parent. Um, You know, he wasn't perfect, but... um,
0: There's no such thing, Alice.
1: He didn't try to analyze.
0: Parent, There's no such thing. Are you a parent?
1: I, unfortunately, am not a parent. that is part of the story here, too, but... um, he didn't psychoanalyze us. That's for which I am immensely grateful. Uh, he was kind of an old-fashioned father, if anything.
0: In what sense?
1: You know, he he had firm boundaries. Uh, he wasn't—I wouldn't call him a permissive parent. The boundaries were wide, but they were firm. Uh, you couldn't get around him. You know, he um, he talked to us, explained things to us. He listened to us, um, but he didn't try to, you know, interpret our behavior, our unconscious motivations, our dreams, unless we directly asked him.
0: Freud has been criticized by a lot of feminists. Do you think he treated you differently as girls? If if you'd have had boys or other boys who he came across, did he treat boys and girls differently?
1: I think if we'd had brothers, things might have been different. Yeah, I do. Unfortunately, uh, we didn't have brothers. And I think the fact that we were at risk for Huntington's uh, gave him more of a motivation to want us to be able to support ourselves. Uh, If we didn't get married, we needed to be able to uh, be independent. He encouraged us to have a profession, encouraged our education. so Huntingtons might have helped us in that way. But yes, we would have been, it would have been different if we'd had brothers, I believe.
0: We mentioned children earlier. Uh, did you choose not to have children because of Huntington's?
1: I was somewhat ambivalent um, even before Huntington's. My sister really wanted to have children. I tried having children uh, at a later date when a genetic test became available. But I think my sister and I have talked about this and we both felt that we subliminally got a message from both of our parents that we shouldn't have children because of this disease. And you know, eugenic thinking um, was very strong about Huntington's in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s even. Uh, so I think that we, we were influenced by that even though later on we tried.
0: Well, it must have been very, very painful. Um, you wrote a book called Mapping Fate, a memoir of family risk and genetic research. Leaving aside Huntington, what do you think you inherited from your father?
1: I think I inherited, or I, I don't know if I inherited, I learned from him. Uh, curiosity, uh, being open to, to new things, um, a love of reading, um a willingness to take some risks although i'm not as adventurous as he is he was i don't think i would say you know and an interest in art i mean he he was the, the interest that he had i came to share actually um
0: do you think we have choice alice as children we think we do, of course. We're told we do. We're told we have agency, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, do you really think we have choice in how we live our lives?
1: Well, I think we have choice within constraints. You know, clearly, we we grow up in circumstances that we don't choose. So, uh, you know, it, they say that that your health matters depending on where you live. Um, I think a lot of it is circumstance you know what class you will, are born into what color you are your religion I mean all these things that you don't choose uh, but within those constraints um, you know there's this I think some people have a lot more choice than other people put it that way and we were quite lucky we were very privileged actually in that respect
0: you were lucky uh, also because you grew up in this intellectual glitterati he was friends with Lillian Hellman with Frank Gehry with um Anne Landers what was it like growing up surrounded with all these intellectual celebrities
1: well you know we met those he, he was he met those kind of people late in his life we didn't grow up around celebrities at all except for famous psychoanalysts you know who uh that was quite a different circumstance but um It was only when we were adults that he began to um, meet and associate with with people like that. Was
0: that because of the Huntington's Association, or simply because he was a leading psychoanalyst?
1: It was because he was a leading psychoanalyst, really. Yeah, and and his reputation later, as he got older, you know, he became more and more uh, well-known, at least in Los Angeles.
0: Right. Was he... um... Was he a great conversationalist with people like Gary and uh, Lillian Hellman? Um, was he a, a, a glittering conversationalist?
1: He was a great listener.
0: Which is what psycho- psychoanalysts are supposed to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. He, he listened, I think, more than he talked, but he did have a good sense of humor. You know, he, he laughed. <laughs> appreciated, uh, he appreciated people who made him laugh. He loved creative people. Um, He loved being around them. So, yeah.
0: You must miss him.
1: I do miss him. Yeah, I do. But he had, I think that he had a great life, you know.
0: Yeah, well, he lived in 98. He met all these amazing people. He was very well respected and well known. I mean, I guess the sadness of your mother's death must have had an effect.
1: Well, you know, they were divorced, so he... Um,
0: but even so...
1: Yeah, I, I think that was a sadness, and then his worry about Nancy and me um, was certainly weighed heavily on his mind, I think. And, of course, he didn't know. She was not diagnosed with Huntington's while he was alive, so I hope that he did not know that. I think he felt good about his life, though, um, he said that he had few regrets. He, he was very uh, reflective about his life and questioning himself even uh, late in his life. And I, I was lucky in a way that he lived so long because it, it was so long that we got beyond all the struggles. and.
0: What was the struggles then? What did you argue about?
1: Oh, we argued, you know, about his marriage um, and another relationship that he had had during his marriage. Um, which you has, didn't
0: approve, or
1: it had been a family secret. Uh, it was very difficult to come to terms with. Um, so that was that was part of it, and uh, I suppose we had different views on many things. And I was very argumentative as, as a young person as well, and um, so we had some stormy times. But there was always love there, and as I got older, you know, uh, that mattered less and less. I could put it behind me.
0: What's your favorite memory of your father, Alice? This uh, this photo uh, is a wonderful, as I said, I love this photo, but
1: Thank you have you. one,
0: one, one an- anecdote about your life with your father, uh, uh, Milton Wexler, what is it?
1: Oh, I have so many. Um, I have- oh,
0: You can have two. <laughs>
1: Well, one of them is from late in his life, he he discovered uh, uh, audiobooks. He he lost his vision. He lost a lot of his hearing, but he discovered audiobooks. And he fell in love with Trollope. He began to, to read and listen listened, really, to all the to great 19th century Victorian writers. So he listened to all of Trollope. And uh, when I would come over to visit him, he would be sitting in his uh, recliner, um, you know, listening peacefully to Trollope. He always wanted to tell me some some scene or, you know, listen to this and I was always too busy usually. Uh, But that was a wonderful image of him. He had sort of looked beatific as he was listening to Trollope. You know, I think another image that I have of him, another memory was when he officiated at the funeral of a, a painter from Los Angeles, John Altoon. Who was a very um, who became quite a well-known painter, um, <clears throat> and died in 1969. Uh, John Altoon was at the center of a group of artists associated with a very path-breaking art gallery called the Ferris Gallery, and he died suddenly of a heart attack when he was young, relatively young. My father officiated at the funeral. Uh, Altoon had been one of his patients, which was public knowledge at the time, and a dad. Um, I wasn't there, but he wrote us a long letter afterward about how he got up, uh, about this funeral, and um, how after he gave the eulogy, everybody, uh, people got up one by one to uh, talk about John Altoon. And dad said there was laughter and there was tears and there were people, incredibly diverse uh, group of people in the uh, church at that time. And then they all, and then my father said to them, Most of you know John Altoon as a painter, but he also was a poet. And uh, I invite you all to come to the graveside and I'm going to read some of his poems to you. And I just, that image um, has stayed in my mind, Uh, a beautiful image. And after, I know that that affected my father very deeply because he loved John Altoon. It was a huge loss to him.
0: Finally, Alice. um... What do you think your father would have made of the, and I use this word carefully, I'm not sure if it's scientifically true, but the, the epidemic of mental illness now afflicting people, especially young people, and especially young girls, it would seem, Did, would this be something that he predicted, that he expected, that would surprise him?
1: That's a great question. I don't know if it, he wouldn't have predicted it. I don't know if it would have surprised him. I think he would have been struck by the sense of isolation that so many people feel, young people too, have felt, and how, uh, and also how deeply they're shaped by, um, you know, social media and what other people think of them.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, he was always one of his, uh, key pieces of advice was to try to tell people, including my sister and me, you know, don't let yourself be influenced, uh, you know, so much by other people's approval of you. Um, and I think that he would have, uh, I would, I think he would have uh, addressed that issue. And, and also the, the isolation and loneliness was something he wrote about even when he was alive. Uh, and the importance of social connections and um you know making them and keeping them as really essential for one's well-being
0: well you really bring your your father to life in a in an evocative way congratulations i'm not sure if that's the right word but congratulations certainly on the book alice
1: thank you Um,
0: it's it's a very warm uh, moving memoir of a remarkable man a remarkable life just as you're your life has also been, I think your sister's lives have been quite remarkable of a certain moment, perhaps in American cultural and political history. Uh, What else are you reading? Uh, In addition, your book is just out. What else is capturing your fancy when it comes to books?
1: I'm reading uh, a very interesting book about the Proud Boys. Proud Boys, Ah. white ethno state, trying to understand the alt-right and it's who's that
0: by? I have to get them on the show. It's
1: by a wonderful historian, Alexandra Minna Stern, Ah, who's just moved to uh, UCLA, actually. Um, <clears throat> so I'm reading that, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination. And then I'm also reading The Waves by Virginia Woolf, completely different kind of book.